We rejoice in all of those. In heaven, we rejoice in that song. That those songs help us see the whole picture, the whole story. When we think of, I love you for those thorns on my brow. If it wasn't for those thorns on our Savior's brow, if it wasn't for his sacrifice, if it wasn't for the blood that was shed, Father, we wouldn't be able to have the hope in mansions of glory and endless delight. I'll ever adore you. Father, we just thank you for that promise, what we can hold on to. Lord, your word is all we need, and that is for sure. It gives us the promises. It gives us the commands. It gives us visuals. It uses people that we can relate to. Father, we are grateful for this opportunity tonight. We know that every one of us is here by appointment. You care that much. You know that we need to be here. You know just exactly what we need from this lesson tonight. You are, you are so great in that way. You are so awesome in the way that you know our hearts, you know our lives, and you know what we need, and you're ready. You're ready to give it. So tonight, Lord, we, we just rejoice. Our hearts are open. Your Holy Spirit is ready to, ready to take these words and make them real. And so, Father, we are, our desire is there. We want to hear from you tonight. And we will give you all the praise. We'll give you all the glory. You deserve it all. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, now, here's our Bible. And so, don't want you to miss this. We never do. So, this is my Bible. I believe it's God's word. I believe every word is true. And it's all that I need. That's right. Now, you may open your Bibles to Esther chapter 8, because we will do that tonight. We'll do every line. But I am going to tell you a story. And so, if you haven't been told a story in a long time, I want you to just listen up and, and to just take in the extraordinary details of this story. And usually, when you start a story, you say, once upon a time... And when you say once upon a time, you, like for me when I was a child, I, I would know that three bears or Goldilocks and, you know, Little Red Riding Hood and all, you know. And it usually once upon a time meant we were going to have a fantasy, a fantasy story. Nothing wrong with it. But tonight I'm going to say once upon a time, and you can know that it is facts. It is truth. This happened. This is in God's word for a reason. So once upon a time, once upon a time, there was an empire, an empire that was huge. It was worldwide. It was powerful. It was the second empire. It took over from the Babylonians, and this Persian empire rose and it had, a, it had quite a few leaders. And one of the leaders was King Cyrus, who looked at this group of unique people who had been spread throughout the 127 provinces. And he, without having any idea, because this empire was totally godless, 
But he knew that there was a group of people that had come from exile. When Nebuchadnezzar was reigning in Babylon, he knew that this group of people came to exile in the kingdom of Babylon because they were being disciplined. It was like a 70-year time out. And he knew that. He knew that they were brought there for a reason. And there were so many, so that's why they were dispersed among the provinces. He, being godless, thought he was just being such a, a great guy that he, he, said to his, he said to his people, he said to his nobles and his officials, and he said to the Jewish people, I want you to know that you are free to go home. Now, the thing is, we know from God's word that this was all God working because he had said, you're going into exile because you didn't listen to me. But I got great plans for you, plans that will prosper you, give you hope and a future. In 70 years, I'll bring you back. Well, 70 years is a long time. And for all human beings who do not keep up with their, their studies, who start to gradually work themselves into the culture of the Persian Empire. So when Cyrus said, you may all go back home, that's what God intended. There's never a day I'm going to think that God wanted his people to stay in this godless territory. When 70 years was up, he was bringing them back home. And so Cyrus even said, I'll even give you things. I will, I will make your journey easier. I'll give you materials. I, I will send you off. And less than 50,000 went. Less than 50,000, the book of Ezra says, because, you see, it was just too comfortable. Why would we want to go back to that broken down, demolished, annihilated city? Why would we want to go back there? The only reason they even thought that was because after 70 years, after four generations, law, Many of them had lost their commitment. They lost their desire to stay true to God's commands and God's word. And it got watered down. And so all they thought was, why would I want to work? Why would I want to go to that dusted to place when it's so comfortable here? We've got everything so easy and so that's why the majority of people stayed behind. And, but we already can see God's working. Even though the people were not in God's will, the one who stayed behind, they were not in God's will. But we can right from the start know that they were in God's care. And God was going to let them go for just so long. And then... We're going to watch how God rocks the boat. How we know that what gets us when we are off track. Godly people to go off track. 
What keeps us from wanting to study and hear God's commands? And it's so black and white, and he spells it all out there because he's trying to keep us and our human nature from trouble because there's consequences to sin. What keeps us from wanting to work at staying close, remaining in him, and he remains in us? Could it be that there was a time that you just were in the state of worry and anxiety, and all of a sudden you started thinking on your own. You started thinking, oh, my life is such a mess, it's just hopeless, and and all of a sudden you disconnect. Or maybe, or, or maybe you just don't see how important it is about studying that. Oh, it's okay, I didn't do it for a day. You procrastinate, I got busy. And you know that one day goes to two and then three. And before you know, you disconnected. And then you're on the throne of your own life. Or maybe, or maybe, you know, you're getting so caught up with technology that instead of God's word, you're going to get all your information from Facebook and that internet because everything on the internet is true. So, you know, it's just what everybody is using now. I don't need my Bible. Get all my info right there. And you disconnect. Or maybe... Maybe you just get lazy because the opposite of lazy is work and you really don't want it because work and discipline to God's word and turning up the TV or whatever it takes to say, this is the time I'm committing to do this. Maybe you're just getting lazy. Maybe you don't don't even realize you don't care. I want to do what I want to do, so... Just so not be convicted, so let's just keep that book shut. Let's even just get lazy. Or, or maybe, you know, this one we kind of smiled at, but, oh, maybe you've disconnected from the Lord because all you can think about is, let's see how it can satisfy me today. Let's see, we're going to eat. Where, what, what is really going to satisfy me? You know, Jesus said that. He said, you know, the spirit is willing, but that body is weak. You know, our bodies, our human nature, you know, sometimes our spirit, our mind says, oh, I know I should do that, I know I should put God first, but I want what I want. And our flesh is so weak. And so it's very understandable of what happened here. And we know Mordecai is the fourth generation Great-grandpa is the one that was exiled. He came over. And then every generation seemed to just loosen its grip and just started to blend in instead of standing out like a star, being a testimony in this godless empire. They did the opposite of what Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. They just kind of started cruising and starting. And, and, you know, they, they didn't, they weren't in any trouble. They weren't in any trouble. They weren't trouble at all. So 
That's why this godless empire didn't really get you. They knew they had a little different customs. You know, they, you know, they were a little different in some of their, their, their ways, but not enough to, to be all bothered about. It was just an easy, comfortable way to live. And, a, and, one, and then there was two people, I really believe, that were, that were guilty of this. Now, there was a man, a wonderful man. He was a wonderful man, Mordecai, who took in his cousin because her parents were gone, committed his life to, to taking care of her and growing her up. And that was fine. All was good. But we're starting then to see God say, um, I am going to start to rock the boat. This, my people, they're my people. And I unconditionally love them. Even though they're out of my will, I love them. And I want them to see me. And so I need to rock this boat. I need to get them to see because they're not, they're not saying my name at all. They're following their little unique practices within, but they, they weren't sharing God with their neighbors. I'm going to see if I rock his boat, if they will come to me. Well, now that Xerxes is king, and oh, he was such an egotistical maniac, and he just loved all what he had, and it was nothing for him to, for 180 days, welcome all his nobles and officials and have a big party for that long time. And then after they finally had enough, after 180 days, I guess so, he would just brag about all what he had and show all of his gorgeous palace and, and everything. And then after they went home, and then he invited every, every little other little person for a week. Come on in and see all what I have. And, you know, during these parties... During these parties, he just, he just loved to gloat in every way, from his wealth to the alcohol to, you know, everything that he could show, all what he had, his clothing. But then, you know, after he used all those up, he thought, I, I am going to call the queen. I'm going to call Vashti or she is a knockout. And these guys, they're so snockered. I'm just going to let her parade in front of them. I'm just going to call her and she is just going to parade in front of these guys. And they're just going to be so envious that that's my queen. All right. She gets the message and she says, no, no way. She has been used and abused, and I think she had just had enough. And she said, no, not coming, not going to do it. Oh, my goodness, everybody's in an uproar. I mean, the king can't believe that she said no. And all the officials now are panicked, saying we have to do something. Because if Vashti does this, then our women are going to think they can do that to us. And we've got to make sure those women are in their place. We got to come up with a plan. And oh man, this is so the Lord working. They have no idea, but it is so God. So 
the nobles and the officials, they, they come up with this plan because I'll tell you, when the king isn't happy, no one's happy. And so they come up with this plan and said, let's ouster. Let's get her out of here. Let's get her out of here. And so, yep, they, they, they fired her. They fired her from her queenship. And who knows? We never hear about what happens to her. Well, after that, we don't really know the time span exactly. But, you know, now Xerxes, oh, whether he misses her or what the deal is, but he's not happy. And so here comes the plan. Let's just call all the, remember when we did all the provinces, and let's have all the cuties come in. Remember when we did this, I said, this was one time you wish you had acne, you wish you were chubby, you wish you had everything wrong with you, because they only picked, they were so superficial. It was all physical. I mean, they, they didn't care about getting to know these women. They just wanted the unused goods. And so let's bring them all in. And then 400 were picked. 400 were picked. Now, you know, obviously, Mordecai is now starting. You know, things were calm. Things were okay. Nothing, well, you know, it was, it was easy living. And now the boat is rocking. What am I going to do? I got to let Esther go. No, you didn't. No, you didn't, Mordecai. This is, this is the first time. This is when the Lord is saying, come to me. Be like Daniel. Come to me. Ask me what you're supposed to do. Maybe you'll come to your senses and know you're not even supposed to be there in the first place. That's why you're being influenced by these godless people. But he doesn't. He just lets her go. Oh, oh, he's a wreck. He's in the courtyard while she's having her. She's one of the 400 picked. And and then, you know, it's narrowing down. And she has a year of treatments. And, oh, he is just a mess, pacing back and forth, wondering what's happening, how's she doing. And, well, then, you know, it was that nauseating passage of Scripture that she was called she was called to be the king's mistress. And she spent that night with the king. That poor girl. What did it cost her? It cost her a lot. It cost every woman that he called in. Because they could never, ever have a life again. Because he would spend that one night with them and he might not ever want to see them again. And they would go from the harem, of course, and then they would get put in the concubine. There wasn't one girl that went with the king, even if it was just one night, that was able to go home, marry, have children. Her life was over just for his gratification. A godless empire. Well, he liked Esther. Oh, he did. And so what did he do? He put that crown on her head and made Esther his queen. Now, we know she was gorgeous. We know that, you know, the gene pool for her was probably really good. But we know more than that is that God was intervening. And so Esther is queen. And Mordecai starts feeling comfortable again. Oh, well, that didn't turn out so bad. He starts working himself into 
a position by the king's gate. So he is with the politicians and, and with the officials, and he's, he's kind of worked himself to quite a place. Now, he had said, he had said to Esther, I command you, do not tell them you're a Jew. He was keep, mom is the word. When things are a little uprising, oh, don't admit you're a Jew. Instead of going to the Lord, I command you, don't tell them. Don't tell him you're a Jew. I wish he would have even just said, don't tell him you're one of God's people. I wish he had even said that, but he didn't. Don't tell him you're a Jew. Well, now that things have simmered down and Esther is queen and he's by the king's gate and, oh, things are calm. And as God would have it, but because he is not looking at it this way. He just happens to think, oh, boy, I'm at the right place. I hear these two guys, they're planning, they're conniving, they're going to assassinate the king. And Mordecai overhears that he goes to the, the right resource, and the assassination doesn't happen. And Mordecai and all what he had done was recorded in the book of the Chronicles. Oh, God was in it. But he doesn't get it. He just doesn't see it. That was all. By the end of chapter 2, they were back comfortable again. Comfortable and easy. And so in chapter 3, the Lord just dropped a man named Haman out of nowhere now, we do know that Haman is an Agite. Very important that we know that he's an Agite because right from the start, as you would see, an Agite is, is one that Saul was supposed to absolutely, when he, the, 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 with this, this Agite, the Agites, the Amalekites, they were, they were Israel's worst enemies. And so when Saul won the battle with the Amalekites back in 1 Samuel. God said, I want you to get rid of them all, everything, everything about them. I want you to keep nothing from them. And he didn't listen. And so, you know, a few of these little traits of the Amalekites, the Agites, snuck through. And years later, here we have, Haman was never even supposed to be but we have Haman, and God is going to use him. Believe it or not, he's going to use him. If he's, he, you know, I think that's the way God works. If your heart's hard and, you, hard and you don't want to come to me, well, I'm going to use you. I'm going to use you for my purpose. And he used Haman. Oh, Haman had, had risen to this position, and so he just expected, oh, he was, he was just like the king. I mean, it was all about him. And the world revolved around Xerxes and Haman. And Haman even thought that people should bow down to him. Oh, when you see Haman go by, you should just go down. And Mordecai didn't. And uh, we, we find that at this point, he had told, he, he, I dared say that. He dared say he was a Jew. Mordecai dared say that. And I think the reason he dared say it is because Esther's queen, I'm at the king's gate. Might as well just come out and say, I'm Jewish. 
And you know what? It, it was fine. No one did anything about it. But now we have Haman, and this is where we're really going to see God at work. Because Haman is so ticked that Mordecai will not bow to him. It just upsets him so much that he goes to the king and he says, this Mordecai, this Mordecai will not bow to me and show me the respect and the reverence that I deserve. And so I want to get rid of him. In fact, he's a part of this sect. There's a whole, they're all spread out, but they're, they're called the Jewish people. And I'm so mad that I just soon I'm not, I just want to annihilate everybody. All those, every Jew. In fact, you know what those Jews, they, you know what they do? They're, they just have these different customs. He says. They have different customs. But then he just lied through his teeth because he, was, he just so wanted the king's permission to annihilate a whole race there. So he said, you know, they don't obey the king's command, and I don't think you should tolerate that. And, of course, Xerxes said, yeah, he says, okay, I'm right. Yeah. So... Haman says, okay, on this particular day, this particular month, and this particular year, this is when we are going to get rid of them all. Seal it with that ring. Oh, he feels a whole lot better about this. Oh, yes, I'm going to get rid of my problem. We'll get rid of them all. Well, word got out. Word got out that this was going to happen. Mordecai heard about this. And, oh, this is another time you think, oh, Mordecai, this is God saying, come to me. Can't you see? You need me so badly. But he doesn't. See, this is when I am so convinced that Mordecai and Esther and the whole Jewish nation that have stayed back, they are spiritually weak. And, you know, that is very serious because the Lord intends for us to be strong, <clears throat> intends for his people to be strong. And when we're not strong, all we have to do, like Daniel, when he said, I have run out of strength, I don't even know. And the Lord says, I will give it to you. Don't be afraid, I will give you strength. Paul said, when we're weak, his strength is perfect in us. So such a time, like right here, Mordecai should have been realizing that we are in a dire situation. But he doesn't. He's spiritually weak. And you know what, what spiritual weakness really is? It's sin. It's sin, and you are falling to yourself, and then you start to see, you start to see bitterness and anger and, and defeat and depression and discouragement. When your spirits are weak, all of those emotions start taking over you, and they are all bigger than your faith. All you can see is how it's affecting you. The flesh is weak. Spiritual weakness when you're not in God's word, when you're not working at it, when you're just 
letting things ride because either anxiety or worry or because you you're just haven't been in the Word because you've been too busy or, like I said, or you're getting your info from social media or maybe you're just plain lazy. Whatever, your spiritual weak. And let me tell you, you're ineffective. And this is what's happening because this is when he should have been strong and gone to the source. But he didn't. You know what he does? He, he goes out into the street and he is dressed with set cloth and ashes and he is in the street and he is wailing loudly and bitterly. He's carrying on. What a sight. Esther, Esther hears about it. Esther hears what he's, what he's doing out there. And instead of going out there and being concerned, like, Mordecai, what is the matter? What's troubling you? What caused all this? She sends him a pair of clothes. He's, she's so embarrassed, like, just him change clothes, okay? When Mordecai says no, then she finds out. Then she finds out about this decree. And Mordecai then says, this is what I want you to do, Esther. I want you to beg the king. I want you to beg the king, little K king. Remember, God never intended for this world to have a king because he's king. When we've had kings, it's been nothing but trouble because he never intended. And so I want you to beg. Mordecai says, I can't even hardly imagine. He said, I want you to beg the king. I want you to go to him and I want you to beg him for my people, for your people, never God's people. She comes back and says, I can't do that. I can't do that. He hasn't, he hasn't called for me for 30 days. Isn't that about as shallow as you can get? His queen, what's he been sleeping all night for 30 days just all by himself? I think not. No, between his harem and his concubines, he's busy. He's busy. 30 days she has not been asked to come to the king. And the law is that you make your presence without permission, your life is over. Mordecai gets this information and he has the information of his own. He sends this back to her. And this is, I know this is a verse we all know and we claim. If he would have only said, God put you in this position, Esther, for such a time as this. But he didn't. Instead of saying, God has put you in this position, he says, and who knows? I was so taken back by that. And who knows? Who knows? You've been put in this position for such a time as this. He is manipulating her. He is putting her on a guilt trip. He is saying with so many words, without saying the words, he's pretty much making sure she knows, come on, you owe me. Look what I've done for you. And who knows? You've been put in this place for such a time as this. 
So she says, you get people and you fast. I'll get my maids and we'll fast for three days. Got a problem with that, and I hope you do too. Fasting is nothing without inviting God in, and, and that's what prayer and fasting is. When you are connected, prayer connects you. Prayer is so much more than closing your eyes and fold your hands and start talking. Prayer is the umbrella of connection that you have with him. And when you want to fast, you do it with a connection with God. You're inviting him in, and you will accept then what, he, what his answer is after these three days. That's why you pray and fast. That word's not there. Because they are not connected with God. Oh, no. Mordecai said, Esther, we got to come up with a solution here. We got to figure this out. This is the plan, Esther. You do it. I mean, these maidens are godless, so they're not going to pray and fast. That's why it's not in there for Esther and her maids. So... She says these words, and I mean, she's brave, but I think she's brave for the wrong reason. She's brave because if I don't, Mordecai will be so upset. And I gotta say, I don't really want all the Jews to die. So she says, if I perish, I perish. But the, the tone, the mood is so much different than when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they stood up to the king and said, we're not going to debate on this because we're just not going to do it. When Daniel said, no, I'm going to keep praying three times a day and I'm going to be facing Jerusalem. See, Daniel knew he faced Jerusalem because he wanted to go home. And that's not the case here. So she does go to the king, and she makes her appearance, and she stands away. Remember how we saw, oh, he's sitting on his throne, and she's, she comes in, you know, catches her through the hallway, and she stands there a long ways away, and he catches her, catches her you know, he sees her, and ooh, I, have, I just happen to know what he's thinking. Ooh, I forgot about her. Forgot what a knockout she is. I mean, it's all physical. I know I don't mean to be seductive and silly here. The whole thing is surface, frivolous, physical. So he points the golden scepter, and she can come forward, and then she kneels, and she touches that scepter. Oh, Esther, what can I do for you? Up to have the kingdom, what can I do for you? If it pleases the king, I would just love to have you and Haman come to a banquet that I've prepared for you today. Come to this banquet and you'll have a good time. And then I will tell you what I want. Oh, boy, that was an, that was an invite they couldn't refuse. So the king and Haman go to this banquet that's already been laid out, prepared, Oh, they're just laying there, and they're drinking their wine, and they're probably smoking their cigars, and they're having a good time. And the king says, okay, yes, or what do you want up to half my kingdom? What, what is your petition? And she comes back, and we all know, we all know that she comes back the first time saying, I'm going to give you another party tomorrow. 
I want you to come back tomorrow, and I will have a banquet all prepared, and then I will tell you. Then I will tell you. Now, I've known that, you've known that, but until we've really studied that this time, I did not see what transformed in 24 hours that we did not see before how God just absolutely changed the whole scenario within 24 hours. So, you know, Haman is pretty smug and he's pretty proud that he gets, you know, that he's gone to that banquet. And he then goes home and, and he, he tells his wife and all of his friends and he starts boasting. Remember, that was another word we looked at. And he was just boasting about all, you know, his sons and his wealth and on and on he goes. And, and then the next verse he said, none of that satisfies me because that Ron Mordecai gets so upset with him. It just, take, it just takes all the fun out of all what I have. And so the queen and his friends, they come up with a revengeful plan because they want to keep Haman happy. So they said, now what about building a gallows 75 feet high? Oh, man, he'll be dangling from that broken neck of his, and everybody will be able to see that no one does this to Haman. No, this felt pretty good. Yes, sir, that's what I'm going to do. But then that very night, while he's sitting there gloating about, this is working out. The king is having trouble sleeping, as the Lord would have it. You can't miss these details. Oh, man, he, and he's alone, which is a shocker probably. And he can't sleep. And so, oh, his little eunuchs, they come and bring the book of the Chronicles. Oh, and he starts reading the book of the Chronicles, and he starts reading all about his reign. Oh, so glorious who I am and what I've done. And he says to one of his eunuchs, now this was so unique and so of the Lord. He uses the word Mordecai. He said, wow, was Mordecai ever rewarded for, for catching those two, and keeping me from getting assassinated. Was Mordecai ever rewarded? And the eunuch says, no, no, he wasn't. So he's thinking that, but that split second, Haman is coming to the king to get permission and his blessing for building those gallows. Now look at this time. You talk about split second timing again. The king is awake and all of a sudden, this is remembered. And the king said, oh, I hear some that one night. And the king said, oh, I hear somebody who is out there. And they said, it's Haman. Haman's come to talk to you. Oh, bring him in here. And then the king says this to Haman. And this is so wonderful because he doesn't say Mordecai's name. He says, Haman, what would you do for the man who I want to honor? 
the man who deserves to be honored by me because of his actions and who he is. Well, obviously, Haman is thinking, well, all right, uh, let me think about this. It's, it's, it's me, so what do I want? And so he comes out, and he, he says, oh, I think you should robe him with one of your robes. And then I think you should put him on one of your horses, especially bread. And then pick your most famous and popular prince and have him lead the horse with this person on it and let's parade him through the city and proclaim this is what happens to the man the king wants to honor. Oh, he is so excited. He's thinking, boy, I can't wait for this. This is just exactly, I dreamed about this. And then the king said, great idea. I want exactly what you said. I want you to do that for Mordecai. And this face of Haman's, so Haman has got to put the robe around Mordecai. He's got to put him on the horse. He's got to proclaim and parade him through the city. Oh, how embarrassing. He was upset with Mordecai before. You can only imagine what he's like now. So now we see, all right, the setting is set and the banquet is going to happen, the second one. But look what all is transformed. I mean, from, from Haman's wife being who he is, because Haman goes home and he tells his wife this, and his wife, I think, is the only person in this whole book of Esther that kind of gets the fact that the Jewish people have something special about them. Because she's the one that has the, the nerve to say, I think you're doomed. So, okay, it's the next day. It's the time for the banquet. And again, everything has changed. Haman, Haman is a little more humbled here. He has no idea. I mean, his wife has already prepared him. I think, I think you've come to your ruin. Goes to this banquet. And the king says to Esther, well, here we are again. So um, what is your petition? And she says these words. My people, my people, according to the decree, are going to be annihilated. That who? On this one day. What? What? Who did that? Who, who would do that? And then she says these three words. The adversary. And she says, that vile, that enemy. She used those three words, the adversary, the enemy, and that vile Haman. And he looked at Haman. And Haman, of course, he's, he actually turned white, and the king is filled with rage. 
It was so funny. Tom and I were talking this afternoon about this story. And Tom says, don't you say it, but I'm going to say it anyway. Tom said this. He said, I got to go out for a smoke. That's what he said. <laughs> but it says that he, he left his wine and he went out into the garden. And I think he was, I need some space. I cannot, I will, I got to go clear my head. I've got to get, I got to get, get some air. And so he's out there, and Haman knows he's got to get to the couch where Esther is lying, and he's got to get to there and kneel before her and beg her for his life. And so he gets up, and, and I don't think I'm exaggerating the story. I mean, we know that they've been drinking, and he probably loses his footing. He staggers, and he wants to get to the couch so that he can plead for his life and kneel before her. And I think he stumbles, and he just, he just lays right on top of her. Lays right on top of her. Now, you know that Esther is pushing him off, and you know that he wants to get off her because this, way, this wasn't his intent. So this is why I know it's split-second timing again that the king comes back on the scene just when he sprawled all over her. And he has no mercy at all. You're going to do that to this group of people, and now you're going to seduce my wife or my queen or whatever. Was You know, that was another thing, wasn't it? I mean, we were just appalled. I mean, they just used women. And, and you know, we know what God thinks of marriage. I mean, it is, it's sacred. And they, they just, you know, throw them out, you know, let's have another one, let's go to the harem, let's go to the concubine, let, you know, and there was no marriage. What God has joined together, let not man separate. A sacred union, none of that. But see, godless a godless territory. So, you know, there the king says, you know, look at this. You are going to hang from those same gallows you were going to hang Mordecai from. You are going to hang. And so he does. I mean, it was at that minute that the eunuchs or the officials come and cover Haman's head and they lead him to the 75 feet gallows and there he dangles by his broken neck. But then that verse, as we ended with the last week, then the king's fury subsided. See there, oh, took care of that. Remember when we talked about revenge, the Lord says, it's mine, I'll take care of it. And which we saw how he took care of Haman. When are we going to learn that God knows how to handle situations far better than we do? So now we start our lesson tonight. The same day, that very same day that all this transpired, the same day King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Oh, I tell you, this is working out. 
Now, Esther, she has got, she is going to have all of this territory. Wow. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Can you about imagine what Haman is thinking? This is turning now far better than what I thought. Esther is now in her place, and the king, you know, adores her, you know. I mean, he, he's, re, he's reminded of how, how beautiful she is, and, and now he's listened to her, and, oh, things are working out. My plan worked And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. So, yeah, Esther owns it, but she put Haman, or she put Mordecai, excuse me, she put Mordecai as prime minister. I mean, they are setting pretty. Esther again. This is, this is why I know, too, that she hasn't changed it's in these moments prior that they should have seen God's hand meticulously working but they don't. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. <laughs> you know what I think she was thinking? Worked for me before. Worked for me before. I can turn on the tears. I can fall before him. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman, the Agai, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. And to me, these next couple of verses are some of the saddest. Because they had a choice. They had a choice to reach out to an almighty God who in his unfailing love he would lavish them with his grace if they would just come to him. But instead, this is what she says. If it pleases the king, little K, if it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it's the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman's son the son of Hamadatha and the Agite devised and wrote to destroy the Jews and all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, because Haman the Gath the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have hanged him on the gallows. Look at verse 8. Now write another decree. You know, whatever decree was, was um, you know, put into place with the king's signature, it was law. And so Esther knew that you were, you were never to break a law. And so that's why she came to the king, please, you know, what are we going to do? I know you put this in law, but, and it's just like the king, well, no problem, because Haman, he was rotten and we hung him, and so, you know, let's, Let's just pretend that never happened. Now, verse 8, now write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews as seems best to you. 
and set and sealed with the ring king's signet ring. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with the, with the ring can be revoked. Because the other one could, because the king said, but this one, no, this one, start all over. Verse 9, at once the royal secretaries were summoned on the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Savan, and they wrote out all Mordecai's orders. Oh, Mordecai is loving this. Now he can even write the decree. He could put it in his words. He can put it exactly the way he wants it. And he has got the ring now, so he can just stamp it. Oh, things are good. So they wrote out all of Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, the governors, and the nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. These orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people, and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed it in the dispatches with the king's signet ring, and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves to destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed force of any nationality or province that might attack them and their women and children and to plunder the property of their enemies. As Mordecai is writing this, look at verse 12. He wanted to make sure because he knew that Haman had, had made a specific day of a specific month of that year. I mean, it was so specific. So in verse 12, the day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces, the King Xerxes, of the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. That is the exact wording of Esther 3.13 that Haman said. He wanted to make sure that on this day that they were all going to be annihilated, that this decree was ready to go, that they could defend themselves a copy of the text of the edict was, was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers riding the royal horses raced out, spurred on. I mean, they took this seriously. Why? Because the king commanded it. And the edict was also issued in the citadel of Susa. Verse 15. And that's why I had us sing what we sang tonight and why I repeated, I'll sing with a glittering crown on my brow. The crown that God gives his children. The crown of righteousness. Mordecai left the king's presence wearing the royal garments of blue and white in a large this. Oh, his full robe of fine linen. Oh, is his spiritual life weak? All he cared about was appeasing himself and coming up with a plan. Oh, Esther, we did it. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration for the Jews. It was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. I looked at that word joy. And after we had talked about the difference between happy and joy, I, I, 
I went deeper into that word joy. And do you know that real joy only happens when we're in his presence? When we're walking right, when we remain in him and he remains in us, when we're walking right with the Lord, when we're in his presence, that's when we experience joy. And I looked at that and I thought, he was so gracious to even give them happiness and joy. The thing is, they didn't even know they were in his presence. Oh, he has been in their presence during this whole thing. And they don't even realize it. So they're just, it says happiness and joy, but I got to tell you, they're thinking those two words that mean the same thing. We got what we wanted. We have been saved. We've been saved from death. I still go back to those four in the book of Daniel, when, when death looked at them straight in the face and how they stood strong. What a contrast. God gave them so many chances to get their attention, to realize they didn't have the power. Oh, but they didn't listen. And, oh, to see God's hand. You talk about unconditional love and mercy and grace. In every province and in every city, wherever the edict of the king went, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And many people, this is the way this chapter ends. And I asked you two questions at the end, and I think they were really good questions. Because I asked you, the last one was, God isn't... God's name, and we sang it in, his name is wonderful. He's the great shepherd, the rock of all ages. His name was not mentioned in this book. And yet, where was he? Isn't that something? They, they, they're living in a godless empire. They're spiritually weak. All they're doing is their little customs to try to appease It kind of reminds me of something that happened to me when I was singing. I remember going to this one church. I won't say the church. It doesn't matter. But I was going to sing to these children. And this one man came in to bring his children. And, I mean, he had, you could tell that, I mean, he had shorts and he had a T-shirt on. These kids were in bathing suits. And he says, don't go along. We got plans afterward. I'll never forget it. We're heading to the beach. So don't go along. And I'm thinking, you know, they thought, well, you know, we better not go to the beach first. We better at least make an appearance. And I think this is exactly what we're seeing here. They hold on to a few customs because, you know, we know we've been taught. It's been watered, watered down a little bit. For, for my, you know, I'm kind of scared because I know that commandment said, thou shalt not bow down to any, you know. But they don't put it into practice. They really don't mean it. I mean, this guy, I bet he was watching during that whole time because the kids were having the little concert by me while he quits go to church. And I bet he's watching his watch the whole time thinking, oh, don't be long-winded today. We got plans. Oh, man, he was out there grabbing his kids so fast. 
See, you can play the game, but don't let it ruffle my plans. The last verse of this chapter, and many people of other nationalities became Jews because because fear of the Jews had seized them. I mean, wouldn't you just love it if they said, and many people of other nationalities became Jews because they wanted to worship the God that they did, and they wanted to be a part of this unbelievable story, watching God interact and make things happen split-second timing. Because of the testimony of Mordecai and Esther, we want to be a part of that. Doesn't. No, they want to become on the good side because fear of the Jews had seized them. They're saying, oh, I want to be a Jew because they're on the good side of the king. And, you know, we, we can kind of count on, they're kind of our protection. And so that other question that I had, you, what really makes you God's people? I mean, what really identifies us as one of God's people, one of his children, a part of his family? And it's only one way. There's only one way we can become a part of God's family, being one of his children. And that's when we realize, oh, do we need a Savior? Oh, are we but? mess. This is what godlessness looks like in the book of Esther. This is even what religious people look like when God's trying to get their attention and they don't want to hear it. They will concoct their own plans. This is the only way you can really become one of God's and that is when you come to the cross humbly And you realize that he is standing there with those nail-scarred hands welcoming you and I into his presence. I think I can almost hear him sometimes say, I've been waiting for you. I've been waiting for you to come to me. And I don't mean just once on the day of our salvation. He is saying that to us all the time. When we know that we have veered off course and we have failed him and we have let the flesh be weak and we have let our spiritual life get weak and we have let all of our emotions get bigger than our faith. And when we come humbly to him, he's standing there. If we confess, he's so willing to forgive and to cleanse us. It's that cross. It's that cross. That's how you become one of his children. Heavenly Father, thank you for this lesson. Oh, my. This really, this really rocked my boat. And it makes us see in so many different ways your alone. Your undivided love and your grace and your mercy. You were so trying to get their attention. You were so waiting for them in so many times in this story to say, oh, we have been wrong. We want to get back into fellowship. We want to get back into that right relationship. But they didn't. Lord, may we learn from this. May we want nothing less than walking with you. And Lord, as we sing this last song, may we realize that day by day and with each passing moment, you'll give us strength. We'll find strength.
to meet our trials here. Because we can trust our Father's wise bestowment. We have no cause to worry or for fear. So let's cherish that old rugged cross where we lay down our trophies, that we cling to the old rugged cross and we exchange it for the crown that you intended us to wear, the crown that only you can give. And we pray this all in our Savior's name. Amen.